is the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Welcome everybody to this uh, second edition of Beer with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science of 2012. Uh, this seminar uh, series highlights the science, thoughts and philosophies of those involved with our institute. And today we are very lucky to have our very own Julia De Marinas. And uh, so uh, Sean will start us off with a wonderful introduction of, a, of Julia, of course, and of a beverage. And just for liabilities, of course, unfortunately, please obey your local laws when it comes to uh, enjoying this beverage. <laughs> and if you do enjoy it, please do so responsibly. Sean, all yours. Well, uh, I'm going to start with the drink, and then I'm going to introduce Julia. And the drink and Julia have something to do with each other, uh, which I'll get to. Uh, the drink today is going to be grog. It's not going to be a beer. Uh, and the way you do grog is you want to start with some spice. In this case, I like orange peel and a cinnamon stick. Uh, you want to add to that some rum. The particular rum I have today is Pusser's rum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. This is the rum of the British Navy. It actually used to be given out in um, uh, rations on a daily basis to the sailors. And you want, like, you know, about a shot of that. And you also want some lime, and the, the urban legend is these guys liked lime in their drinks to help keep them from uh, getting scurvy, because it was a nice source of vitamin C. So, like, about half a lime's worth of juice. You want a good amount of lime in here. And I'm just going to get that all out. And then... To that, you add hot. Uh, oh, one more thing, one more ingredient, which is sugar. You want about a teaspoon of sugar to cut the cut the rum a little bit. Uh, if you have raw sugar, that's going to be the best. That's what those guys would have used back in the day. Refined sugar wasn't really around. And finally, you add to that some hot water, uh, both to dilute the rum a little bit because they had really strong rum back in the day, and it was also a way for them to get uh, some actual water into their systems. Um, because the rum and the alcohol in the rum would help uh, uh, make the water more healthy uh, in terms of killing some of the things that are growing in it. So that's grog. And the reason I'm introducing grog today instead of a beer is our uh, wonderful speaker today, Julia De Marinas, just got off a boat. And uh, she was not on a pirate ship. She was not on a naval vessel for the British Navy. Uh, she was out there doing some outstanding blogging for a science cruise uh, and she's not going to talk about that too much today, although uh, she does have some tube worms she was showing us uh, that she picked up as they were exploring mid-ocean ridge vents and the life there. Uh, uh, she got a, uh, the, the, a blue marble of one of the mid-ocean ridge vents, which is really, really cool. Actually, it wasn't a mid-ocean ridge vent. It was just a seafloor vent. I'm sorry. Uh, but Julie's been doing some awesome blogging. Uh, I, I suggest you check out her blogs. One is I'm on a boat, uh, as in the song, except without the swear word. And uh, what's the what's the other blog, Julia? It's um, 2012oasis.blogspot.com. Uh, I can send them uh, around in just a second. There you go, 2012oasis.blogspot.com. Uh, uh, check out both those blogs. They're really cool. I'm on a boat is a little bit more fun. The uh, Oasis blog is a little bit more science-y, uh, but you should check them both out and uh, enjoy our speaker. And if you're at home, uh, enjoying responsibility with me, enjoy your grog. So without further ado, Julia Damarinas. 
Julia, before you start, I just want to emphasize to our listeners that the uh, handout for Julia's talk is on our website at www.bmsis.org slash podcast. Sorry, go ahead. No worries. Uh, hi, guys. I just um, entered the two blogs that uh, Sean was so kind to introduce. I'm really excited to be talking to you guys. Number one, I, I love Blue Marble Space and all the people that... Uh, are a part of it and anyone associated with it. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the challenges associated with remote detection of primitive biosignatures. And don't worry, I'll break down this mouthful of a title for you guys. And what I will, what I mean by that is I want to kind of talk about just how tricky it is to go about sniffing out the signs of primitive life or biosignatures remotely. And by remotely, I mean both in our solar system and beyond on extrasolar planets and their atmospheres. And when talking about biosignatures, I'm going to embarrass my wonderful friend, Sean Damagol Goldman, from his 2010 paper. He, he really puts it really nicely on what a biosignature is. And he says, uh, for a gas to be a biosignature, it must have a biological production rate that far outpaces abiotic sources and an atmospheric lifetime that allows it to build up to detectable levels. To be detectable, the biosignature gas must have special spectral features that are, one, within a wavelength region that can be covered by instrumentation, and two, larger than signal-to-noise ratio for these instruments, and three, distinguishable from other spectral features. And what that means is you have to be able to have no other explanation for this spectral signature that you're seeing other than that life produced it. And that's, that's pretty hard to do. But don't you want to know if there's life in the universe? Yes, well, so do I. And since we have complete uh, lack of compelling evidence that the universe is teeming with intelligent life, perhaps... Perhaps it knows how to hide, or we could be overlooking it, or perhaps intelligent life is rare and primitive life is more common. If this is true, you know, we're maybe primitive life is, is, uh, is all around us, and we just have to find if it's there. But for now, I'd just like to raise our beverages to all of the impacts, earthquakes, warming, and cooling events that bottlenecks life to pump um, out humans as an evolutionarily end product. So if it weren't for you, Mars-sized object that impacted Earth to create the moon or a series of snowball Earths that, that we've been through and so forth, you and I wouldn't be around sitting here drinking, chatting about life in the universe. So we're really glad that life, that the universe does produce uh, intelligent life. And cheers to all of the Mother Earthers out there. So yes, back to life in the universe. If advanced life such as photosynthesis is rare... Um, perhaps primitive life isn't so rare, as I just said. The fossil record hints that soon after the Earth was... Hold on, we have some messages here on Skype. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, cool. And good toast, by the way. <laughs> Cheers to that. Yeah. I didn't hear anything, so I thought I might just be drinking alone, but... <laughs> okay, so... Back to what I was saying, that the, the fossil record hints that soon after the, after the Earth was formed, life began and began to change its surroundings. So check out figure one on the PDF. Uh, this graph shows the approximate amounts of the atmospheric constituents in log scale over the history of our planet. 
And so if we're going to go look for life in the universe, we should first use what we know about life on Earth as a starting point to look elsewhere. And it's fruitful to understand what our atmosphere looked like in the past and how life was an influence. So we should start with what we know, and that brings us to our first challenge. Challenge number one, looking at the history of Earth's atmosphere and how life influenced it. Since we obviously can't go back in time and take air samples, scientists rely on clues found in ancient rocks or paleo soil, soils or ancient soils and ice cores to piece together the history of our atmosphere. Um, there's a really cool mineral, a trace mineral found in granite called zircons that are able to withstand geologic processes pretty much unharmed. And this is really, really good for geologists because they can look at the oxygen isotopes, the different types of uh, oxygen molecules that are in these zircons. And oxygen is a really good um, clue to telling what the temperature was at the time. Quick caveat there, Julia. Yep. The zircons are, not, are, are chemically very, very stable. They are not all that structurally stable. So you get little tiny bits of old zircon mixed in with lots of younger rocks. A couple weeks ago, actually, you saw one of the grad students here at UCLA going down the hall. She had a bunch of rocks that she was about to dissolve in hydrofluoric acid solution to separate out everything that was not zircon. So That's it's cool. shiving through the rocks to find these one little old bits that have the oxygen isotopes you care about. It's right, exactly. pretty impressive work. Yeah, they're like kind of like Superman of minerals, I would say. Okay, thanks for that, yeah. And if anyone has any other, like, really good things they need to point out, feel free to, because not all of this is exactly my, my forte, but I really am enthusiastic about all of this, so please uh, chime in and at the end as well. So we have this kind of rough estimate of what the Earth's history should be in terms of temperature based off of said things, uh, the rock record and these zircons and ice cores. So according to this, to this, um, the temperatures, there, it, it was shown that back in the day, about, you know, 3.8 billion years ago, that geologic evidence suggested a warm Earth, a warm early Earth. And due to how stars evolve, we know that, the, that our sun and all, all stars go through a process of increasing their luminosity over time. And so if we go back, if we trace our sun's luminosity back to 4 billion years ago, we know it wasn't producing, it wasn't radiating enough to heat the Earth if, it's, if Earth was about at the same distance away that it is now, given the atmosphere at the time. So there's this, there's this problem that um, our sun wasn't producing enough heat to create the temperatures that we find at these times. So this, is, this problem is well known and it's called the faint young sun paradox. And lots of people have proposed ideas. And uh, based on the absence of carbon dioxide in, in the paleo cells, additional greenhouse gases would be required to kind of give it more of a greenhouse effect to warm the earth. And methane is a very attractive candidate, as you can see on the figure one, to solve the faint young sun paradox as it traps solar radiation uh, more effectively than CO2. Um, however, there's a problem with methane. Methane it has a half-life of roughly seven years in the atmosphere before reacting with OH radicals or reducing, being reduced by photolysis. But despite this fact, methane can remain bound in the atmosphere if it's being constantly produced. Kind of like oxygen in our atmosphere today is constantly being produced by photosynthesis. So 
by a, a lot of people think, a lot of scientists think that methanogens were producing uh, methane in a metabolism called methanogenesis. Um, there's also some, I'd like to point out, there's some controversy to this. Uh, our other good BMS friend, Jacob Hakmisra et al. published in 2008 a paper suggesting that perhaps there was an overestimate of methane in these earlier Earth models. And this amount of methane would actually cause a methane haze actually cooling the Earth. And perhaps maybe there is other explanations such as ethane that is one of the first hydrocarbons produced by photolysis. So perhaps methane to be considered as well. And Julia, I'll just just for fun, I'll chime in a little bit there. Um, <laughs> the paper you're talking about, you know, it, it, it wasn't even that we found a, a physical reason why there was an overestimate. Really, there was a coding error in uh, the model we were using. So, um, in fact, there was older papers that had correctly stated that there was a modest amount of methane um, in the year 2000. It was Pavlov. Alex Pavlov was the lead author on a study that. Incorrect. Alex did not make this error, but somewhere along the line, someone, basically, it was an array error. They started counting it the wrong bin um, when they were reading in the data. And so we got way more warming out of methane than you really should have gotten. And so my paper that Sean's an author on and basically fixed that error. And then, as you mentioned, proposed, look, you might get ethane from all this photochemistry. It was basically looking at Titan as an analogy for the early Earth. And you might get haze just like you get on Titan. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. You said it better than I would. <laughs> so regardless, um, both, I guess both previous and present models kind of agree that methane is still a likely contender for, for at least solving or getting towards the f solving the faint young sun paradox. And this brings us to our next challenge. How do we search for biosignatures, how do we search for what we know kind of happened on Earth and perhaps ha could happen elsewhere? So we may have a rough idea of the composition of Earth's atmosphere through time, so we have something to base our search on, but how do we even begin to search for life in the universe? Uh, looking at planets and moons in our own solar system, it's possible with, with ground-based observations and space-based observations. And amazingly, we've, we have a really good, a pretty good idea of what, what's in the atmosphere is in our solar system. And that's really cool. But when you're dealing with, with extrasolar planets, planets that are around other stars really, really far away, many, uh, light years away, we need to rethink the plan. Um, Ground-based observations have yielded some spectra of exoplanetary atmospheres, but the process is very tricky, and I'll explain just a little bit. If you're going to measure the spectrum of an exo-atmosphere, you have to catch a planet when it's just passing the edge of a star. Uh, and this process is called eclipsing. You can see figure two on the handout. Big pardon. Uh, this, is all, this is with current instrumentation. There is, right. of course, the idea that you put the occulter out there and black out the starlight. Don't worry, I'll get to that. That's like my favorite okay. thing in the world to talk about. I, I knew that was coming at some point. <laughs> yes. So, um, but for right now, what we can do is we can we can talk about the process called eclipsing. Um, and briefly, I'll explain it. Pretty much the light of a, a transiting star. So a star has to be in line with our our line of sight and the its own star has to be passing in between. And you have to catch it um, just when it's hitting the edge of its star. So you, you take the photons coming through the atmosphere of that planet and you compare it 
to the spectrum of the star when it's when the planet is behind the star and you can look for this the differences in the spectrum um, however this is a very delicate process and a significant amount of photons need to be collected in order to pull out the signal from the noise and as as a, I think that was Michael, was that you? Another way to, yeah. to do this is to just simply blot out the parent star and to see the reflected light of the planet shining through to kind of just get the full idea of the spectrum of that, of that planet. But we don't have anything like that just yet, but there's a lot of proposed missions such as the New Worlds Observer, if you see figure three in the handout. Missions like the exoplanet observing mission, New Worlds Observer, will allow us to see planets like we've never seen before. And the way that this works is you you can send a, a space telescope, kind of like Hubble, where uh, New Worlds Observer proposes to do it at Lagrangian point number two, which is farther away than, it's not in low Earth orbit like Hubble was, but it's farther away on the on the other side of the moon. And pretty much you send up this space, this space telescope like Hubble, and then you take an occulter, um, as Michael said, in this case, we call our occulter a starshade, um, and it kind of looks like a sunflower. And the reason for that is the, the flower petals do a really cool thing to light where it pretty much, for lack of a better word, blots out this, the starlight really, really effectively, more so effectively than just a, a normal uh, circle would. And there's some fancy physics that go along, and I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that afterwards. And that suppresses the light of the of the star because if you think about it if you're looking at a small tiny planet around a big luminous star there's no way you'd be able to see the star the the planet light um, without a lot a lot of cool tricks like occulting but due to politics and funding it may it may be a while before we're able to see planets in this sense it's also to note that i will be talking about methane throughout this because it's a it's a particularly good biosignature. It has a very strong absorption feature in the visible and the near-infrared. And other biosignatures that are more evolved, such as oxygen, are actually pretty hard to pull out of the noise unless you have really high amounts. Of course, got a caution there again that methane is produced by a bunch of processes that have nothing to do with biology. Right. Which is so challenge that brings us, thank you, that brings us to... Mars. Yep, that brings us to challenge number three, how to tell if it's really life. So yes, so let's say we do see a gas like methane. Should we pop our champagne bottles open? And I would say keep your bottles chilled. Finding methane can be produced in several ways. And this is kind of what I, I dove into over my summer internship at Ames this summer. I investigated the ways in which you can distinguish the different origins of methane. And it turns out methane is royal pain in the arse, literally and figuratively. And here's what I mean. Uh, we've seen that methane is a, a major greenhouse gas. Some organisms eat it, some produce it. We burn it to cook our foods, heat our houses, car, uh, cows fart it, and so do you. And it's found in the seabed and oceans, in the soils, and our atmosphere. And large quantities of methane originate from anthropogenic sources. For example, when we have rice patties, me methane-producing microbes find a home in these rice paddies, and, and it's actually a major concern for global warming. Actually, Julia, if I could just interject quickly, um, one of the reasons that rice paddies have that effect is because in, in, in a bog, swamps don't contribute as much methane because there's methanogens near the bottom that produce methane, but there's methanotrophs at the surface of the water of a, of a swamp or a bog that eat the methane, 
But in a rice paddy, the rice it grows like a tube, and so it's like putting straws into the water, and so the methane bubbles up and just goes right past the uh, methanotrophs that would otherwise eat it. That's cool. I didn't know that. So, yes, back uh, back to more methane. Um, it's it's a particularly interesting molecule because it has been detected, um, although in some cases quite controversially, in a number of bodies in our solar system, and and it has multiple origins. For example, methane can be produced thermogenically by the derived from petroleum under heat and intense pressure within the mantle of Earth's crust. Uh, methane can also exist in trapped in seafloor sediments and in permafrost and in a solid structure called methane hydrates, which is a type of clathrate, if you have ever heard that term. Also, there's a lot of abiotic processes in which methane is produced. Uh, there's a process of serpentinization, which is a, a reaction between olivine-rich rocks and water, and also can yield methane as a byproduct. It's completely abiogenic. And biology also produces a large amount of methane in, in methanogenesis, as, as mentioned in the beginning, where microorganisms in the archaea domain release methane as a metabolic byproduct in anoxic conditions. So we have all of these ways that methane is being produced. So how do we know where this methane comes from? Um, but there are some really cool tricks that, that life does to carbon. And that is when, when life uses carbon to eat, or all, all, all life uses carbon, if we're talking about um, methane, methanogenesis, for example, these microbes, they they only use the lighter isotopes of carbon. So let me take a step back. All the carbon in the universe, uh, there's about three forms that it's readily produced in. Carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon-14. About 99% of all carbon is carbon-12, the lighter isotope. It's stable. It's pretty much everywhere. And the second stable form of carbon is carbon-13, and that's about 1%. And there's a, a small percentage of carbon-14, which is radioactive, but we won't talk about that. So when you're dealing with life, life tends to use the lighter form of carbon. And that's kind of like thinking if, you're, if you have to go backpacking, or let's say around a Grand Canyon or something, and you have to backpack for about you know a few days, you'd rather take a lighter backpack that has the same amount of necessities than a heavier one that has the same amount of necessities. So you wouldn't want to trek around a heavier backpack for no reason if you have the option of using a lighter one. And it's kind of the general idea. Um, it's just easier to use the lighter isotopes of carbon, and plus there's, there's more around. And sci scientific instruments today allow us to see exactly how much lighter isotopes of carbon that life uses versus heavier. Even though it's a very small amount of heavier carbon-13, you can still detect a little bit that life uses and compare it to the larger amount of carbon-12 that life uses. So, Julia, if, I'm going to have to run off here, so I just want to thank you again for running the talk. Yeah. And now i got to think about how you could possibly, uh, what instrument you would need to pick up C-13 on a planet a long distance away. You should listen so. to the rest of the podcast. If you have a chance. I'll try to catch it. Okay. Have a good day, everybody. Cool. Bye. Okay. So, so we know that, that life has these little tricks, and it, it uses these lighter isotopes of carbon. And as you go higher and higher up the food chain, this kind of gets amplified. So if you look at figure five, I think we're on figure five. Let me double check. 
Oh, figure four, sorry. So if you look at figure four, here's the isotopic fractionation, which just means the ratio of carbon 13 to carbon 12 on the bottom and hydrogen to heavy hydrogen, we call deuterium on, on the, the y-axis. And I know this graph might be a little bit hard to read, but you can kind of categorize the different isotopic fractionations, so the different amounts of carbon and hydrogen that life uses versus other processes that produces methane. So if you can see, there's the, a little area that thermogenic methane resides in, in terms of your hydrogen and your, your carbon. There's an, a group where low temperature water rock interactions exist and high temperature rock interactions exist, so that you could think of serpentinization as those processes. Um, and there's some of the biogenic ones, the hydrogenotrophic and acetotrophic organisms. And they produce these fractionation signatures in these kind of clumps. And you can kind of group them into, you know, all of the signatures of, of methane that we know today. So that's really cool. So life has these special little areas where it has its spectral signatures of, of methane, which is good because we could, if we had developed our instruments a little bit more, we could... Um, possibly kind of differentiate and, and see what's on in the atmospheres of other planets. Uh, but however, there's challenges with that too. Hey, Julia, just a quick question. You said yep. that you can see the uh, difference in isotopes using spectra? Yeah, so in the, in the near-infrared, there's a, a band, there's a, a part of the wavelength of methane that is not in the water bands. If, you know, if you're familiar with uh, spectroscopy. Um, you have to look, I think it's at 0.9 something, I should know this, 0.925 microns or something like that, that you, you can see the different peaks of carbon-12 and carbon-13. Uh, but I'm definitely not the one to explain it in very much detail, but I could definitely find some papers and pass them around. Kevin Zonnelly's a good person to talk to at Ames. If people want to know more about that, I could come back and talk about that a little at the end. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. So yeah, there's parts of the wavelength where you can actually spectrally tell the difference between carbon-12 and carbon, uh, excuse me, uh, carbon-12 and carbon-13 of the methane molecule. And that's really, really, really interesting if we're going to go looking at life in the universe. But however, this summer I was kind of disheartened when I was talking to Brad Bebout and his team at NASA Ames when he found a false negative of an organism on Earth in a specific scenario in a hypersaline condition. So in, a, in Baja, California, and in salt flats actually near San Francisco, there are all these, these methanogens who their normal food has been consumed by sulfur-eating bacteria. So they, they don't have the normal food that they like. They don't have the lighter carbon that they, that's really easy to use in their in their metabolism so they're forced they're kind of starved of the lighter isotope of carbon and they're forced to use carbon 13 so in their spectral signatures they produce a heavier isotopic fractionation rate they produce heavy uh, c13 into a range that falls completely outside of the normal categories that you see in figure four and that is on figure five if you want to turn to that so the, the data points um, that say area 11, pond 23, area 9, etc., 
those are some of the signatures of the, the methane that they were seeing from these starved microbes. And that's kind of a bummer because places like Mars are, exhibit, say, like hypersaline features. So if you're starved for a certain, for your food, you might be expressing these kind of false negative cases. So yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty disheartened by that because I was like, man, just when we think we've got it, life throws this, I don't know, punch at us. What that means is we, we need to do a little bit more research and try and see if we can categorize those into maybe their own group. But as you can see, it's really ambiguous. It doesn't fall into any category. So this brings us to our next challenge. How do, we, how do we check our answers? Let's say we do see methane, like there's claims of methane on Mars. That in itself has its own controversy. We're still, we still aren't sure if it's even there. There's a, I highly recommend a paper kind of refuting the claims of the seasonal plumes of methane on Mars by uh, Kevin Zonnelly, 2011 et al. In this paper, it goes through all of the claims of finding methane on Mars and shows how there are alternatives to to their findings. Uh, for example, the 2003 case of Mike Muma observing methane plumes on Mars, or is it 2008? Sorry, my, no, 2010, I lied. Um, so it's a recent paper saying that we've seen methane on Mars uh, based on ground-based observations. But uh, Kevin Zonnelly had looked in and his team looked into this a little bit more and said that in the models that they were using to subtract out Earth's atmosphere from their ground-based observations to isolate Mars's spectrum, they, they think that in their models they were missing temperature-dependent portion of, of methane or of, of water. So they just got their models slightly wrong. And when that happened, the methane that they were seeing could be traced back to methane on Earth, if that makes sense. So we have to be really careful of what we're seeing and what we're publishing judge for yourself, but that paper to me was really, really interesting. So that kind of also was disheartening because I really wanted there to be methane on Mars because that's such a cool thing for the potential of life, of primitive life on Mars. So that brings us to our next challenge, false positives. We talked a little bit about false negatives, and I might let Sean talk about this a little bit later because he's a genius at this, but there's a few ways that you can produce signatures that might look like life, but they're really by uh, chemical or, or other processes. Uh, I've been sticking to mainly more primitive signatures like methane from methanogenesis, which is a more primitive organism than things like photosynthesis, which are more evolved. But if we're, t if we're looking for oxygen, there's ways that you can produce oxygen and ozone in ways that don't have anything to do with life. And I might, I might let Sean chime in on that afterwards. But I just wanted to wrap up and say the other challenge is challenge number six, and that's funding. If we want to look for life in the universe, we really have to fund really good quality science that's going to be able to let us open, uh, send stuff into space that's going to open the doors to seeing this, the signatures of, of extrasolar planets. There's, there's a lot that can be done now, but if we really want to see you know, spectral signs of methane and be able to tell between the methane of carbon-12 and carbon-13 on an extrasolar planet, we really need to, to send space-based missions, in my opinion. And there's lots of problems with that right now. And that's kind of a, a side note is funding. It's an obvious one. 
and there's politics that go along with that. I wanted to to take a step back actually and talk about um, if we do see see methane and we do see if we're able to resolve the lighter isotopes of carbon that are indicative to life as we know it, that still doesn't that still won't make me at least pop my champagne bottles open, and that's because the life that might be producing these signatures has to feed off of something, a substrate, the carbon in its, in, its, uh, in its rocks or its surroundings. And for whatever, let's say, for whatever reason, that planet has a different isotopic ratio than the carbon found primarily on Earth, then its signatures might be completely different. It might be lighter just to begin with. And we won't know that until we uh, bring back a sample with us and measure it, but that that's really challenging in itself. Just for a classic example like Mars, it's really hard to bring back samples from our, our neighbor. There's other ways that you can measure, maybe signs of the substrate by measuring the carbon isotope and CO2 from the planet. And I might let Sean chime in a little bit on that. But yeah, I just wanted to conclude and say that we have come a long way in terms of finding out really neat tricks that life does that we might be able to search for. And we have a good future ahead of us. And I really do hope that um, future missions like New World Observer get funded in the future so we can have more clues and, and know what's out there. So I'll stop it at that and open the floor for comments and questions and if you guys don't want to add anything. Cool. Well, thank you, Julia. That was great. Um, so yeah, I have I'd like to continue this conversation on the uh, carbon isotopes things the, because the uh, the difference is relative to a terrestrial standard, right? But does that right, yeah. does that standard apply to Mars or to other worlds as well? So that's the thing. That's the challenge is that we can't necessarily measure the substrate on on uh, on those planets. But I think that since we know that life does utilize the lighter forms of carbon, I think it'll be really, really interesting. And it'll still tell us a lot um, if we find lighter isotopes. But yeah, it, it doesn't correlate exactly. I, I, I mean, I, I just don't know, actually. This is Sean. I think the way I'd put it is, you know, it's, it's very hard to get the home run. But if you get a series of singles, it's going to do the same job. Here's me going back into baseball analogies again. <laughs> but, you know, like if, if we see methane, that's one thing. If we see methane in the presence of oxygen, that's a whole other thing. Right. And if we see methane in the presence of oxygen where the methane has a high degree of fractionation compared to some other carbon in the system like carbon dioxide, that's, that's really huge at that point. Um, and, and that's at the point where I'm willing to pop the champagne bottle <laughs> if you, know, you have those three things in place. I just wanted to add another thing. So we're, we're sent Mars Science Lab um, to Mars mm -hmm. in November, and on it had an instrument that, that will be able to discern uh, carbon-12 from carbon-13, but they just took the instrument that would be able to tell the difference between deuterium and hydrogen off which is a bummer because although it will still tell us a lot, like going back to figures 4 and 5, um, it's really helpful to, to know the, the hydrogen uh, composition as well. But yeah, continue. Hey, I have a question that's related for Julia or Sean or anyone. Um, do we know, have we mapped the spectrum of Titan 
well enough, and I'm assuming it's close by, so I'm assuming we have a pretty good spectra of Titan. Uh, do, have we analyzed the spectrum to conclude that there are no anomalies in the spectrum that remain to be explained, perhaps, by unknown biology? I mean, can we conclude from the spectrum that Titan is probably abiotic? Because um, the early Earth might have looked something like Titan, um, although maybe with different isotopic uh, variations. Um, from what I've heard, I, I don't know the most current status of Titan, but I know it's, it is in a disequilibrium. And I, from my understanding is, is that they, it's a bit unsure of, of the processes that are going on to, to keep it in a disequilibrium. And that's another biosignature I forgot to mention. Um, if you see an atmosphere in a chemical disequilibrium, that's something to, to, to raise some flags about. But I don't, Sean, do you know anything more about Titan? I, I'm pretty sure in terms of the spectrum that we've modeled it uh, without including, uh, modeled it pr pretty accurately without including the effects of biology. Um, I, Meg, had you worked on that when you were in the casting group? I know someone in the casting group is working on that, and I, I, I think Ty, Tyler Robinson's also done that, but I don't think that, that work is published. Um, the, the other thing about Titan in terms of life, the, the interesting thing has more to do with the disequilibrium that Julia was talking about. I think there was a paper by Chris McKay where he tried to look at the disequilibrium in the atmosphere as a function of altitude, uh, with the argument being that if there was life in some of those organic liquid lakes at the surface, that you'd see an increase in disequilibrium as you approach the surface uh, uh, that, that was driven by, or I'm sorry, a decrease in the disequilibrium as you approach the surface for a certain redox pair that, that life would have been using for chemosynthetic uh, energy as a chemosynthetic energy source, and I believe that they did not find that. Um, the, the the other thing, I, in, in terms of of spectra that have a, a feature that's unexplainable, the only case that I'm aware of is Venus. Uh, some people have proposed that there's this uh, mysterious absorber that that is caused by life. Although others, including myself, think it has more to do with some sulfur species we just haven't incorporated into the models yet. Since uh, Titan's atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, does it, uh, and it's the pressure or surface pressure is higher than it is on Earth, does it uh, have the nitrogen pressure broadening as well to warm it up a little, despite the fact that it's freezing cold? <laughs> Sean? <laughs> what was the question again, Sanjoy? What? Oh, I was wondering, so you know Colin Goldblatt's paper about the pressure broadening on the early Earth, oh. where the nitrogen would be, in fact, enough to warm up to solve the faint young song because of this pressure broadening. And I was wondering if that applies to Titan as well. Yes, although uh, the, the, my understanding of the pressure, so, so the pressure broadening in and of itself isn't a huge warming source. What it's giving you is additional warming from, from greenhouse gases that are already present in the atmosphere. And in the case of the, the work by Goldblatt et al., they're looking at a planet that already has a pretty rich greenhouse effect. Uh, both from CO2 and from water, and a little bit from methane. And I think they're, they're mo they mostly, I believe, focused on pressure broadening of pretty big absorption features from carbon dioxide and from water. And so I think the answer to the, that question, Sancho, I don't know if anyone's considered that explicitly, but my intuition, this is me thinking off the top of my head, would, would say that, that, that it probably wouldn't be as big of an effect on Titan 
um, as as it would have been, especially for the earlier. When when Goldblatt was looking at it, he was talking about adding like a whole bar's worth of atmospheric pressure from nitrogen. Right. Um, and that increases. And that's that, 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 my concern. There is actually going in the other direction, as some of your work might suggest, uh, and losing losing uh, losing some t temperature from pressure broadening. Right. So so the increase in temperature comes from that the added pressure from nitrogen increases the the wavelength scale that the CO2 and methane can absorb. That's right. Okay, gotcha. That's right. Basically at the at the peak absorption at the in the middle of the absorption feature where the absorption is most efficient and the, the wavelength at which the absorption is most efficient, you're basically absorbing all of those photons uh, in the atmosphere. And so you adding more CO2 isn't going to absorb any more of those photons because they're already observed. The planet is black at that wavelength. Um, but what the pressure broadening does is it essentially expands the width of wavelengths the gas can absorb at, which those photons are not yet absorbed, and they could be if you pressure broaden the, the, the greenhouse gases. Gotcha, thanks. Um, Sean, could you talk a little bit more about how um, spectra can detect the uh, isotope fractionation? Yeah, the, the, the issue there is going to be getting a really, really high spectral resolution and still getting enough photons to maintain a decent signal to noise. Um, but the, the principle behind that is if you think about what causes absorption of photons in the atmosphere, it's one of two things. It's, it's always an energy transition. Let's keep it simple. Uh, when you're absorbing photons with molecules, it's, they're, they're generally absorbing those photons associated with some energy transition in the molecule. And that energy transition has a certain, uh, it's a, there's discrete energy levels, right? That's where the word quanta, quantum comes from, quantize. They're specific energy levels. There's, there's not a gradation of energies. It's specific steps on a ladder. And what changing, and if you think about it, there's vibrational energy that's part of the energy inside the molecule. And if you think about a spring uh, with a certain spring constant to that spring, and there's two masses on either end of that spring, if you change the mass of one of those two blocks on the end of the spring, you're going to change the energy in that system. And it's the same thing in a molecule. There's sort of a spring energy inside the bonds of a molecule. And if you change the mass of one of the atoms in the molecule, that's like changing uh, the mass of one of the blocks on the end of that spring. You're going to change the energy of the system. And what that means for, for the, the spectrum is when you change the, the energy of the vibrational levels by changing the masses, you also change the difference in energy levels from one state to another. And that means the energy between those two states is going to be different. And that means the photon corresponding to that energy transition is also going to be different. So in other words, you change the mass, you change the energy in the system, that changes the difference between the energy levels, uh, which changes which photons can be absorbed by the molecule. And so if you change the mass, you end up actually absorbing at a different wavelength than you would if, if you had the, the sort of standard mass of the molecule. Cool. That's, I think, the best I can do without a full hour <laughs> on chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's good, that's good. I guess one other uh, wrench I could throw into the mix is the problem of uh, oceanic life, like on Europa, and maybe it's a planet that's inhabited and life exists in deep oceans underneath a very thick layer of ice um, or, or something. And then maybe we could, you know, conclude falsely conclude that a planet is uninhabited just because um, we the the, the I guess the imbalance would be in, in, in the ocean state and not necessarily in the atmosphere. 
Um, it's hard to do anything with about that with telescopes. Just throwing that into the mix, I guess. Yeah, what I've I've started to push for talking about what we call the quote habitable zone unquote be really defined as the global surface habitable zone, where you know what we're really talking about, and it's the same thing for any of these biosignature methods. We're really talking about detecting a global surface biosphere. We're not talking about detecting all biospheres. It's a specific kind of a specific subset of biospheres. Um, sure, and it just—I mean, this is how we have to search. I think this is great, and it's—you it's, know—certainly this is one way to proceed, and one of the best ways to proceed. It just makes me think, like, you know, what else might we miss uh, given our, our biases and our methods? And well, the, you know, the other way—the the, the way I'd like to think about it is—I I would like uh, out there well enough so that. If we build a TPF mission, we'll have a reasonable amount of confidence that we'll be able to detect all the biospheres that a, a, a mission with that signal to noise could detect, right? And so, you know, if you if you if you don't find evidence of life on a planet, you wouldn't necessarily say it's dead. I would argue you you should say something to the effect of life is not present within the you know is not creating a large enough signal for us to life if present is not creating a detectable signal. Um, you know, like, and that that would take care of the Europa case because even though Europa may be inhabited, uh, it would not create a signal large enough for us to detect. But if you say things in that way, right? We did not find if life is present, it's not making a large enough signal for us to detect with this instrumentation. You're covering the Europa case. Yes, I like that, and and that's going to take some concerted effort at at uh, careful science communication on on the part of the guests. I like that. <laughs> Cool, thank you. Well, we're so, if you think about signal to noise, it, it, it actually comes out of the wash that in that way is, I guess, the point. True. We're approaching the uh, our, our time limit. I was wondering, is there perhaps one last question for Julia? Nice job. Yeah, thank you, Julia. This was very, very interesting. Yes, Sean, <laughs> the grog was a wonderful idea. I think it fitted well with Julia's most recent adventures. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for tuning in. And uh, remember, Beer with Blue Model Space Institute of Science is a monthly podcast, so we'll see you all in March. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>